stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Hello, everyone. Hello. How you doing out there? How's it going? How are you? Me? Everyone. I'm hot. I'm sweaty. I'm full of chicken. And I'm ready for another episode of The Long Road Home. Me too, on so many levels. Yeah. Shout out to El Camino in Bozeman, Montana for their amazing chicken sandwich. So good. Y'all, Delicious. I mean, it's a little taste of, of home, really. Oh, we don't. They don't know where home is. They don't know where home is. <laughs> Where's home, Emily? Home is North Carolina. It's here. Well, I'm never going back. Home is where the heart is. It's here. My heart <laughs> is in my body. I I travel with that. It's an important piece of luggage. Well, before we really dive into this episode, I wanted to talk about something that I found on the internet during the last round of research. Y'all, this shit is pretty weird. It is strange. <laughs> So uh, we were looking for gray alien stuff, right? And I'm on the internet. I'm on Google. I don't even remember what I searched anymore. It was like gray aliens, uh, human DNA harvesting or something. You just end up going real deep. Yeah. And I found the strangest PDF I've ever found in my life. I mean, it kind of looks or resembles uh, some sort of religious texts. Um, it has a lot of pictures. So if, if that... If that's what you're into, they've got it covered, you know. But um, it's not just pictures, though. It's like alien Jesus on a hologram crucifix, <laughs> yeah. surrounded by Mother Mary, with like six eyes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, the the <laughs> the document that we found is not the original. Um, I don't think it is, unless the author themselves was taking extensive notes on their own work. It very well, could I have believe been. that we found. Someone who had also found this document and then found, well, and then read the entire thing and found um, some sort of meaning in in the text because it was just highlighted and there were all kinds of uh, notes in the corners. And um, it was weird. It's really, really strange. It made me uncomfortable. I felt like I dug a little too deep. It's all about like, it seems to start out as like a Gnostic Christian thing, which if you don't know what that is, go look it up. That's not what this episode is about. Not and to clarify, to clarify here, he's not saying agnostic. It's just no. gnostic. G n o s t i c. Basically, it's something like God was an alien. If God was an alien, that's the story of Gnosticism. It could be a children's book. If God was an alien, what if God was an alien? <laughs> could be. I don't know. It was really weird and. We've already posted some of the pictures on Instagram of just some of the images that are in there, but I'm sure eventually once this podcast is released, if someone's out there and listening and they want more, let us know and we'll post some more of them because they are wacky and I plan on reading the entire thing. Just just be prepared. You may or may not be put on some sort of list for having possession of this document. We'll, we'll find out. We'll let you know. It's okay. Lists don't matter in the end times. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing matters. 2020. Yeah. One more thing before we start. We need to talk about the different sort of subjects that we're going to be covering on this podcast. So this podcast isn't just about all... Bump, bump up a little closer to the mic. So this podcast there, isn't... That's so much Sorry. Better. It's okay. I was gonna, scared of the mic. Now I can turn mic. you down a little bit. Okay. You just sound far away. Okay. So we are not solely interested in aliens, werewolves, skinwalkers and the like um we also want to take a, a closer look at other parts of the human experience and the human consciousness yeah and that's going to come oftentimes in different forms of spiritual belief which leads us into our first episodes on this subject and we decided to start with buddhism so i'm going to give you i'm going to hit you with some real stuff okay yeah so today uh buddhism is the world's fourth largest quote-unquote religion and I, know, with, I know. I don't like that word. She doesn't. And it feels restrictive. Yeah, explain. 
I think, I personally think that spirituality, uh, when you hear the word spirituality, you associate it with um, an introspective look into your human experience and, and maybe what got us here, um, where when I hear the word religion, to me, that sounds kind of restrictive and I associate it with the rules that go along with that spiritualism. So it's you can't do these certain things. And, and I like to think of spirituality as, as a journey, and it's a little more um, forgiving. Well, you also said that Buddhism in itself doesn't claim to be a spiritual It's, it's true. In, in all of the texts that I've read, um, it says clearly that Buddha, Buddhism is not a religion. Now, I don't claim to have read everything out there. There are a lot of different forms of Buddhism in the world. It's taken a lot of, uh, a lot of different shapes. At BuddhaNet.net, where I found a lot of my information, um, there were hundreds of different texts um, that kind of introduced you into Buddhism. And at the very start of most of those texts, it says that Buddhism is not a religion. Um, it's more of a way of thinking and a way of life. Okay. Yeah. There well, you have it. Hot, That's my opinion. Hot take but from Emily. But according to the rest of the internet. According to Wikipedia. It is the fourth largest religion in the world. Yes. And it has 520 million followers. That is 7% of the population. That's a lot. Now, that didn't happen overnight. There's a lot of history behind Buddhism. It seems to have formed from two different pathways. One pathway begins with the Buddha. Prior to the Buddha, there is a separate pathway that is the other fork that merges with Buddha and becomes Buddhism. Is that because um, Buddha himself was brought up in uh, a Hindu household? Is that the right way to well, say it? Well, he is the historical founder of this belief system. So before him, it technically didn't exist. But there are things that led to him becoming the Buddha. That influenced him. Yes. Gotcha. Exactly. And that begins with the Vedic religion. Uh, it's also known as Vedism or was it's also known as ancient Hinduism. We're not going to go super deep into this, but this ancient religion split into what is called Brahmanism, which is kind of similar to the caste system that you see in modern Hinduism today, where there are different levels. Brahmanism had a much m more specific focus on the higher classes. Gotcha. Um, I didn't do a ton of research on Brahmanism because it didn't ultimately lead to Buddhism. Um, so the other side of this was what was, uh, oh, wait, hold on. So I didn't do a lot of research, but I did look into one thing because it caught my eye. It is an ancient Vedic religion or an ancient Vedic, uh, what is the word when they do a, a dance and they, a ceremony. Ceremony. Yes. I found, <laughs> I didn't do a lot of research into it, but I did find this ceremony that really caught my eye. It is called the Ashvamedha. I think that's how you pronounce it, is a horse sacrifice that only a very powerful king, or I, I don't know what they're called, what would you call a Vedic king, a powerful Vedic leader leader could do. So <laughs> this, is, this is super weird. Like Just to think that people used to do this type of stuff is crazy. So an ancient king would use this to prove their imperial so sovereignty. Uh, what they would do is they would take a horse and it, some texts say it had to be like a white stallion or a white, like, spotted stallion. For several months, they would prepare the horse, doing different ceremonies. They would bathe it and things like that. They, so would, the king would also undergo different cleansing ceremonies. And the horse was released. The horse was followed by hundreds of soldiers uh, throughout the land. They, didn't, they, they were not allowed to drive it. They couldn't lead it. They just followed it. Huh. Um, now... So the horse was accompanied by these warriors, and it was, it did this for a year. It just wandered around. Um, and they followed it for a year? Yeah, they followed it for a year. Oh. So in the territory traversed by the horse, any rival could dispute the king's authority by challenging the warriors that were accompanying the horse. After a year, if no enemy had managed to kill or capture the horse, the animal would be guided back to the king's capital. Then, through another month-long cleansing ceremony, it would be sacrificed with a chain of animals attached to it to basically prove the king's sovereignty. And I can't remember how many. I think it's like 27 other animals are tied to this horse, and they're all killed together. Whoa. Yeah. It's a crazy ritual. That's the, the word I was looking for earlier, ritual. Ritual, yeah. Um, mm. That the... I don't know how I feel about the other 27 animals. I mean, I guess, what year is this? I'm sorry, it's um, Who knows? 1500 50, BC. Roughly. Okay. 
you know, no judgment here, but this sounds pretty badass, actually. Yes. Like, wherever this horse goes, you may challenge me, but I fucking dare you. Yeah, it's a wild notion. (laughs) It was, it it really caught my eye. I thought everyone would enjoy hearing about that. Uh, Look more into it. It's cool. And it just goes deeper. Vedic is not the last religion. It just keeps going back and goes deeper and deeper back in time. I don't know when the wall ends. I don't I, know when I the think, hole ends. I think that it ends with cavemen worshiping the sun. I think. I think that that's my son. If you were, if you were really like gonna go that deep, I think that's where we would land. Probably. Um, so, anyway, that was um, also that was uh, the historic Vedic religion. That was not Brahmanism. That was the Vedic. Just FYI, the other group of people that seemed to come out of this were called the Sramana. No. Yeah, yeah. Is it Sramana? Sramana, yes. Yeah. The other people, so the Sramana, I guess this is translated as one who labors, toils, or exerts themselves for some higher or religious purpose, or it's a seeker who performs acts of austerity. Oh, Uh, or the ascetics. Yes, or the ascetics. Okay. Which we'll talk about later. Um, So this term was very, this term was found first in early Vedic literature and is predominantly used as an epithet for the rishis. Now, <laughs> this is another term we're going to have to go over. A rishi is a is another Vedic term for an accomplished and enlightened person. Uh, they Rishis were the people who composed the hymns of the Vedas, which were sort of like their scriptures. Post-Vedic tradition of Hinduism regards the rishis as great sadhus or sages who, after intense meditation, realized the supreme truth and eternal knowledge, which they composed into the hymns. Uh, these people arose in these same circles of mendicants in ancient India that led to the development of yogic practice. A mendicant is one more term we got to go over. It is one who practices mendicancy. They rely chiefly or exclusively on alms to survive. Uh, and an alm is just a giving to, an, to another person. Oh, random acts of mm-hmm. kindness. Yeah, so you get into the medicants and you, you start to see people who don't have a lot of belongings. Typically, it's just a bowl and the robe that they have. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. These people also develop popular concepts in all the major Indian religions, such as the cycle of birth and death and the liberation from that cycle. And <laughs> I could try and pronounce these words, but I don't think you want to hear that. So... That is a very brief overview of how we got to the era that the Buddha came out of. Now, Emily, tell us a little bit about who the Buddha actually was. Okay, so the historical Buddha um, was born to a royal family in a small kingdom on the Indian-Nepalese border. His actual name is Siddhartha Gautama. Um, and he was born approximately 2,500 years ago. So the king named him Siddhartha, uh, which means he whose aim is accomplished. Apparently, when he was born, a hermit came to visit the palace and asked to be introduced to um, little baby Buddha. Uh, and I guess the king and queen were okay with this, I, I'm not sure what was going on back in approximately 500 BC, um, but they handed the baby over to this hermit, and he claimed that he had a, a vision of the child, and he said that the child would become a great emperor, but if the boy ever left the palace, then instead um, he would become a world spiritual leader. So, uh, like any good parent um when the king heard this prophecy he decided to go into helicopter parent mode um and he he locked down really tight around siddhartha and decided that he wouldn't witness anything anything terrible in his life anything his palace was like a little bubble the buddha was um a young bubble boy so much so that when flowers in the palace lost their petals the servants of the palace had to go and clean them up really quickly so that young buddha would not uh witness things withering away does that make the hermit uh marley chilton chloe from bubble boy no no one anyone <laughs> is that too vague of a yeah, reference i think a little a little bit are you talking like og bubble boy with john Tra- Tra- with john travolta no the st- 
stupid one with with Jake Gyllenhaal Isn't, from 2001. Wasn't there one with John Travolta? I don't know if it was called Bubble Boy. That one is... <laughs> Come on. That was so dramatic. <laughs> Aren't they all? But anyway, yeah, the king, he decided to just completely overcorrect, and he didn't want his young child to see anything bad, um, so that way he would always want to stay in the palace. And... Uh, Young Siddhartha longed for nothing. He got everything that he wanted. He always had a full belly. Um, and at the young age of, I believe, 16, he was actually married off to the love of his life, who apparently they had been lovers in previous lives. Um, now we're getting in a little a little deep here. Um, but he did, he did marry and have, I believe, a child? He had a son. A son. That's right. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as he's coming of age, he he starts to get a little antsy, um, and he decides to convince his father the only way that he can be a true leader of his kingdom was to go outside of the palace and explore and learn about the world. Now, he came back after this trip, right? Yes, and actually he went on three trips total. Mm. Um, and his father knew about these trips and actually went out into the streets and did his best or not he sorry he himself didn't go out into the streets but he sent his people sent out crony. he sent his people out into the streets that's goon, right to, go on goon to collect or to to send away uh the sick and the elderly and hide them away from his son what a weird thing to not show anyone it's very american of so him. he really believed he, he literally didn't believe at this point he didn't know that people could get old or get sick or die he was that sheltered he just thought that Life was wonderful, and everything was perfect, and everyone got what they wanted all the time, and nothing bad ever happened. Yeah, that's American. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's American. Debate it's a me. lot of things. I'll fight you. <laughs> um, anyway, so he, he went out on his first trip, and I guess the king's people didn't do a, a super great job. I guess on his first trip, he he ran into a man, and he, he had a really bad cough, and he was he was sick. And he actually asked the servant who had who had taken him outside of the palace, he said, what's wrong with this man? And he, the servant said, well... Eventually, everyone gets sick and they die. So like, not, no, they don't. So the servant, right? <laughs> I've had the same dog for forty years. So that servant did not obey his orders. At least he didn't get the point of cleaning up the streets. Um, so this is when Siddhartha started to kind of question his own reality. Um, and again, he went out on a second trip, but this time he encountered an elderly man. Now he's encountered somebody that was sick. He realizes that people can get sick. And then the second time he encounters uh, an elderly person and he realizes that people can get old. And then the third time that he goes out, he actually, he finds a dead body. And so now all of his, all of, (laughs) the bubble is popped. The bubble is burst. Everything's, (laughs) the earth is crumbling from underneath of him. And he realizes that um, there essentially is suffering in the world. And this is where we really see his life take a turn. Um, and this is where we see Siddhartha um, begin his journey down the spiritual road of Buddhism. Um, he abandons the palace. He abandons his, um, he abandons his uh, wife and children, but we're not going to get into that. Um, he explains it, kind of. He, he does explain I mean, it. I'm not... he, he was 16. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. He was 16. What were you doing we don't when you need, were we can totally we can totally cut that. Whacking it. <laughs> That's what uh, you were doing. A bunch of sickos. Okay. Um not, not you. <laughs> oh my god. Maybe you. I wasn't. Trust me. <laughs> Most of the people know. I knew were. Anyway. But really this this prompted him to start questioning the meaning of life. Um, And eventually he felt compelled to leave his palace and follow the traditional Indian path of the wandering holy man. Okay. Or a seeker of truth. He became very adept at meditation under various teachers. uh, And then he started to take up ascetic practices. Remember we talked about those guys earlier. This is uh, a belief that one can be free by denying the flesh. So it's essentially um, deprivation. Of all things, right? Of all things. Uh, and he he practiced this so uh, religiously that he almost starved to death. And that's that's where we get the the figure of the starving Buddha. Is that correct? I believe so. Um, 
And again, we don't claim to be experts on, the topic, experts on this topic. So I'm please, hardly a Buddhist. We're, we're, I guess again, we're all Buddhists. We're, we're, we're dipping a toe in. We're really interested and we want to learn more. But if you have information to share with us, if, if we've um, said something and you don't think that it tracks, please reach out. Yeah. Anyway, so he almost starved to death. And at this point, he realized he still hasn't um, solved the mystery of life or death. Uh and he, he also was getting really frustrated because he said that his, his mind was was slow, but he was starving himself. So I think that's probably that probably had something to do with it. So he realized that deprivation wasn't the way. And he also realized that living in the life of luxury wasn't the way. Gotcha. And that this wasn't bringing you any closer to the mysteries uh, of life. In the enlightenment. The enlightenment. Thank you. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So this, I guess, apparently then he he ate a bowl of rice milk. Everyone got mad. And the aesthetics, he, I I believe that he was with five. But again, the, I say you know how when so you're hungry food. and someone opens up a moon pie and they eat it in front of you, I'd be mad too. <laughs> they were like, "What? What are you doing?" They thought that he had given up, uh, but he just had really decided that this was not. This was not the path to enlightenment. So he decided he was no longer going to starve himself, and he sat down beneath a uh, sacred fig tree and vowed to stay there until he gained enlightenment. Now, I think that it's implied, but he was probably eating, right? I think so, and at this point, because he's going down now, what you, well, he's going down now, what is known as the middle path, and it's somewhere in between complete starvation and complete indulgence. That's right, and he stayed under that tree and meditated for approximately 40 days. Now, this is very interesting to me because 40 days is used a lot in in religious symbolism. I will say on other on other texts that I read it it said 39 days. Um but so I they rounded up. <laughs> so maybe some people have rounded up. Jesus um, might have been out there 39 days. I will Who I will, knows? I will also say that a lot of Buddhism was founded on oral traditions, so yeah. We, we might have lost a little bit of this in translation. But uh, approximately after approximately 40 days, he supposedly reached uh, enlightenment and finally attained ultimate freedom. Well, yeah, and going back to the 40 days, uh, it's just, it's okay. It just seems to be like a very important number, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. Is that right? That's Does true. anyone know the Bible? That's No, uh, no. <laughs> He was under. I a f- do. That's true. It is. It was forty days. Yes. Um, yeah, and so this is something that also. Also, n- Noah, it rained yeah, for that's forty what days I was and forty nights. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're all good. I, I mean, it just seems like Buddhism in itself has a lot of inherent ties with the belief system of Christianity, and I see that a lot in the books that I'm currently reading, which is something that we're going to discuss in our next episode with a guest. Uh, but but they use a lot of Christian references to connect Buddhism to the Western belief system, I think. And I just find it really interesting that they, they seem to cross over so much in that way because, honestly, when I think of Christianity, I, I see a lot of negative connotations in my own mind simply because of the way that, I, you know, post-McCarthy-era Christianity has become so prevalent in America. I think there are some good values in there, but it has been absolutely just poisoned with some really extreme views. But underneath it all, there is a value system that is very cr- closely related to what some other people do see as a more peaceful and intrinsic religion. I believe it's that way with, with any religion. You know, there's always going to be extremists. There are, and I didn't do a lot of research into it, but there are there are Buddhists who do believe that uh, there are other people who need to die because of their belief systems. So they are out there. But really? Yes. That's so interesting. You yeah, know, David Nickturn talks about it on one of his uh, discussions with Duncan Trussell in his podcast. I guess, you know, um, everyone thinks differently. And, and when you're reading a text, there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret it, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. So according to the BuddhistCenter.com, Buddhists believe that he reached a state of being that goes beyond anything else in the world. If normal experience is based on conditions, upbringing, psychology, opinions, perceptions, then enlightenment is unconditioned. A Buddha is free from greed, hatred, and ignorance, and characterized by wisdom, compassion, and freedom. 
Enlightenment brings insight into the deepest workings of life and therefore into the cause of human suffering, the problem that had initially set him on his spiritual quest. Now, a lot of the words that they use are... Now, a lot of the words that they use, such as compassion and insight, I think they have a, a different meaning in the the Buddhist belief system. Uh, compassion doesn't mean you look down on someone who is poor or broke. You look at someone with the idea that within them is the potential for enlightenment, and you see how great of a person they could be, and it helps you make a connection and better not understand the crazy bullshit that's coming out of their mouth, but understand that there's a reason that crazy bullshit's coming out of their mouth. And you can have a better discussion with someone through that to help them become more enlightened and gain more insight. That's right. Uh, The Buddha taught many things, but the basic concepts in Buddhism can be summed up by the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So after those 40 days, when Buddha had reached enlightenment, he actually went back to those five ascetics that he had been deprivating himself with. And he he shared with them what he had learned. And he started with these these four noble noble truths. Uh, that was his first uh, sermon. sermon. Yeah, sermon. Jinx. <laughs> you owe me a soda. <laughs> oh, wait. I owe you a soda. <laughs> <laughs> you failed. Ah, I've bested you. I lost. You've been bested. Do I owe you two sodas? <laughs> anyway, um... So let's let's dive into the four noble truths. What is the first noble truth? The first noble truth is that life is suffering. Great. <laughs> I already knew that. Is so. that is that something that you didn't already know? The first noble truth is this. There is suffering or dukkha. Dukkha should be understood. Dukkha has been understood. So again, it's there is suffering. In case you didn't already know, life is suffering. So um, we want to be careful with this this first truth. Um, it doesn't, it sounds depressing, right? Up front, there is suffering. It's not necessarily um, inviting, right? Especially for those who maybe have not sought out uh, enlightenment in the past, right? Most people don't. You, you want to be careful with the wording here. It is not I am suffering or you are suffering or we are all suffering. It is simply there is suffering. When, when we say I am suffering, it conveys a sense of, um, I don't know, I am suffer- I'm somebody who is suffering a lot. This suffering is mine. I've had a lot of suffering in my life. Then the whole process, the association with oneself and one's memory takes off and you start to remember your childhood and so on and so forth. And now you've kind of lost the point of what you were trying to seek out in the first place. So we want to just say simply, there is suffering. Um, And when we say that, you're able to kind of remove yourself from the equation and, and just see... See it, it, see it as it is uh, and look out at your fellow human and see that they also have suffering. To let go of suffering, we have to admit it into the consciousness. But the admission in Buddhist meditation is not from a position of I am suffering, but rather there is presence of suffering because we are not trying to identify with the problem, but simply acknowledge that there is one. And um, before I get any deeper into the Four Noble Truths, I wanted to let you know I got a lot of my information today from a book called The Four Noble Truths by... And I'm so sorry. I'm going to butcher this name. Ajahn Sumedho. And I found this this book on Budanet.net. Um, they have a very extensive library. It's a really great way to look into what Buddhism is all about. And they even have different levels. Um, you can look into Buddhism for beginners, Buddhism for scholars, and so on and so forth. It, it, I'm just rambling about Buddha Net yeah, on that, but it's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Check it out. Anyway, so to sum up the first truth, these are the three aspects of the first noble truth. This is the formula that we must use to apply in reflection of our lives. 
Whenever you feel suffering, first make the recognition. There is suffering. Then it should be understood. And finally, it has been understood. This understanding of dukkha is the insight into the first noble truth. Okay, second noble truth. It also has three aspects. There is the origin of suffering, which is attachment to desire. Desire should be let go of. Desire has been let go of. Um, This is also known as pariyati. The second noble truth states that there is an origin of suffering and that origin of suffering is attachment to three kinds of desire. Desire for sense pleasure, kamatana. Desire to become, bhavatana. And desire to get rid of, bhavatana. This is the statement of the second noble truth. Okay. What does that mean? So. Tell me. I mean, think about, think about the first one. Desire or tana. This kind of desire is wanting to sense pleasures through the body or other senses and always uh, seeking things to excite or please your senses. I'd believe that. So what brings us pleasure? Yeah. I'm a gear junkie, so I 100% understand this feeling of craving yeah and i mean it could be as simple as you are enjoying a good meal and you take a bite of your food and you desire to have that next bite it tastes so good and that you desire the next one it actually in in a lot of readings that i came across it said to exercise um or to to try out different exercises with this desire so the next time that you're eating your meal and it's something that you really enjoy take a bite and see um that physical reaction for for that that longing. Gotcha. Try to notice it. The second aspect of the second noble truth is the desire to become something. We get caught in the movement of striving to become happy, seeking to become wealthy, um, or we might even attempt to make our life feel important, right? Who isn't guilty of that? Not me. right that's bullshit no i mean everybody wants to become better to become a star to become a lover to become a friend whatever that is for you right we're all we're all longing for something in that way and actually something that's partnered with that is the desire is the next or third aspect um, which is the desire to get rid of things. So this is something that I, I found really interesting. You you don't necessarily think of desire in terms of getting rid of parts of yourself or getting rid of objects, but it's saying that <laughs> it uses the word ignorance a lot, which if you're coming into this openly, you're okay with, but on days where maybe you're a little bit tired and you're just trying to read through some text and it keeps calling you ignorant, you, you start to feel a little bit <laughs> triggered. But it says that if you have an ignorant um, mindset when looking into this truth, you might feel even the desire to become enlightened. Interesting. Or you would say, I want, if I can get rid of my selfishness, if I can get rid of my thoughtlessness, then I can become enlightened. So that's mm. why it says that those things are, go hand in hand. Okay. The third noble truth with its three aspects is there is the the cessation Cessation? Cessation. Okay. Is there is the cessation of suffering of dukkha. The cessation of dukkha should be realized. The cessation of dukkha has been realized. We beat it. We (laughs) we beat the dukkha. So. We didn't beat anything. There's, yeah. The Buddha. The whole aim of the Buddha's teaching is to develop the, is to develop the reflective mind in order to let go of quote unquote delusions. We reflect as we see suffering, as we see the nature of desire, as we recognize that attachment to to desire is suffering. So we see suffering. There is suffering. The reason why we're suffering is because of desire. These insights can only come through reflection. They cannot come through belief. You cannot make yourself believe or realize an insight. You simply have to be willing to sit with it and contemplate and, and reflect on your own inner thoughts and and the way that you think about yourself in the world yeah that's definitely something that a lot of people don't do anymore and that is another big part of the material i've been reading is coming to grips with your past and 
and not being afraid to look at it and not not only not not necessarily accept it but just say this happened and cradle it and love it and allow it to help you become a better person right the fourth noble truth like the first three has three aspects the first aspect is there is the eightfold path the atangika great pronunciation atangika i don't even see that word so atangika maga oh sorry i'm gonna say it the other way (laughs) because there's another way araya maga or aria maga the fourth noble truth like the first three has three aspects the first aspect is there is the eightfold path the aria maga the second aspect is the path should be developed the final insight into arahanship is this path has been fully developed. So the path, according, once again, to the thebuddhistcenter.com, uh, it's a process to help you remove or move beyond the conditioned responses that obscure your true nature. Right, and it's not necessarily a step-by-step process. No, it, it, it's, it's more, a circle. It's more like a circle, right? It's mm-hmm. like a wheel. Um, all of the, the different steps in this path um, support one another and, and help you get to the next Like s- dark. Stepping just like stone. dark. What? It's just like dark. <laughs> just like the show? Dark yeah. on Netflix? Yes. Interesting. Oh, I see. Yeah. Go watch dark. It doesn't matter where you start. You'll always end up yeah. in the same place. Uh-huh. So, should we start on the first? The first? Yeah, sure. The first step? Uh, Again, when we say the... Uh, I don't want to say again. Here, I'll, 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 can I start? First element. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. There are eight, right? Yes. <laughs> it's okay. the eightfold path. All right. So, so on the eightfold path, the first, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say that I'm not going to pronounce these because, once again, I don't know this language. The first element of the eightfold path is right understanding. This arises through insights into the first three noble truths. If you have these insights, then there is perfect understanding of Dhamma. The understanding that all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. It's as simple as that. You do not have to spend much time reading. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing to understand the words, but it takes quite a while for most of us to really know what the words mean in a profound way. Right. With right understanding, you have given up the illusion of a self that is connected to moral conditions. There is no longer the belief that you are your body or your feelings or your thoughts. The second element of the Eightfold Path is Sama Sankapa. Sometimes this is translated as right thought, um, but for all intents and purposes, we are going to call it right aspiration. Um, It is important to see that aspiration is not a desire. Um, It's actually interesting in this book that I had read. It talks about how in English we use the word desire for everything of that nature, either aspiring or wanting or craving or, but it's saying that aspiration is a feeling, an intention, attitude, or movement within us. Our spirit rises. It does not sink downwards. It is not desperation. Next, we'll look into the third, fourth, and fifth element of the Eightfold Path. Sila, the moral aspect of the Eightfold Path, consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That means taking responsibility for your speech and being careful about what you do with your body. This is where it gets into the things like don't drink alcohol, right? That's right. Um, We have to be careful about what we do and say. Otherwise, we constantly hurt ourselves. If you do or say things that are unkind or cruel, there is always an immediate result. Your body is a temple. That's right, and you should also be kind to your fellow man. Wash your hands. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. Also, um, it, it talks about your livelihood. You shouldn't have a career that hurts others, whether that be <coughs> pharmaceutical sales. Don't do bad things. Killing is badong. What? <laughs> That's a Kung Pao reference for all you movie lovers out there. And the thought is that right understanding and right aspiration have a definite influence on what we do and say. So panyana, or wisdom, leads to sila, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The final three are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. They refer to your spirit or your heart. When we think of the spirit, we point to the center of the chest, to the heart. So we have the panyana, the head, sila, the body, 
and samadhi, the heart. And these are integrated. Yes, they're all they're all feeding into one another. They support you... one another. Yeah, exactly. Okay, very cool. So that's the eightfold path, huh? Right. So B- Buddha's first teaching was the four noble truths. The fourth noble truth is that there is an eightfold path. His next teaching was on this eightfold path. Wow, that's a lot of numbers. Well, the reason that they use a lot of numbers is because Bo- Buddhism was in was traditionally oral. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's not a dirty word. I know. It's, I know. It's funny. It's just funny. Buddhism started as an oral tradition, so it was easier for people to remember four noble truths. Eightfold path. That makes sense, actually. And so on and so forth. um, It was easier for them to memorize and then share with others. That's awesome. Well, that's where we're going to sort of leave you with the belief system for now, I think, right? We could could go a lot to go in. That's that's really just skimming the surface, though, of what Buddhism encompasses. That is, that that feels like, to me, a lot of information. It is. It is. You know, um, when when you look at it in depth, it it can become a little overwhelming. Really, if you can kind of pull back and look at it, I think that it all all seems to make sense. Um, Those are the actual lessons from the Buddha. Right. And this is the foundation of Buddhism. So you could go a a lot deeper and it it goes a lot. You could go a lot deeper, but that's where we're going to go today. I would also like to go into some of the actual things that the Buddhist philosophies do encompass. So there are some ideals at the heart of Buddhism that are collectively known as the Three Jewels. Based off more information from the Buddhist Center, there are some ideals at the heart of Buddhism that are collectively known as the Three Jewels or the Three Treasures. These are the Buddha, the Yellow Jewel, the Dharma, the Blue Jewel, and the Sangha, the Red Jewel. It is by making these central principles, it is it is by making the central principles of your life that you become a Buddhist. We've talked a lot about the Buddha, um, and this is specifically something that we've said a couple of times, the historical Buddha. There are actually 28 Buddhas. The historical Buddha is the most recent. Some of these have really crazy stories, and you almost get into more of a uh, in-the-beginning top scenario where these past Buddhas lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Many of them were 87 57, 100 feet tall. They were just these giant celestial beings. What I found interesting looking through these is that at some point they seem to all interact with the historical Buddha at some point during one of his past lives, which was really interesting. They also seem to lead themselves down the same path. They all end up leaving uh, their kingdom to pursue enlightenment almost immediately after having a son, which is almost is the same thing that the historical Buddha did. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a cycle. Well, and if you listen to David Nickturn or uh, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast, don't they say that if you, in some forms of Buddhism, we are all Buddhas? Yes, that is called the sacred view, and that is why a lot of, uh, that is why Buddhists that believe that try not to hurt anything, because inherently we all have the Buddha within us, and that makes us all very special. Now, in this philosophy, the Buddha refers to both the historical Buddha and the ideal of Buddhahood itself. The whole Buddhist tradition derives from the historical Buddha, and all schools regard him as their root founder, guide, and inspiration. Going to the refuge to the Buddha means seeing him as your ultimate teacher and spiritual example. It also means committing yourself to achieving Buddhahood, enlightenment for the sake of all beings, which means that you aim to become someone who sees the nature of reality absolutely clearly. So that is the first jewel. The second is something called the Dharma. Now, the Dharma primarily means the teachings of the Buddha or the truth that he understood. The Dharma also has some other meanings. For Hindus, Dharma is the moral order of the universe and a code of living that embodies the fundamental principles of law, religion, and duty that governs reality. Dharma almost feels like physics in a sense to me. It's saying that there are things in this world that are a certain way and we see them as that. That meaning is usually associated with the lowercase Dharma. Uh, lowercase d in this case uh, and translates to the way things are that's from the buddhagarden.com but yeah so when you hear the word dharma it can be used in a couple of different ways so it's good to take it in context but when speaking about dharma in terms of buddhism it primarily means like the teachings or the texts of buddhism right or the truth i should say essentially 
Yeah, I think the that's a good that way to put it, that. I suppose. And But in the second sense, Dharma is the teaching that was born when the Buddha put his realization into words and communicated it to others at Sarnath in northern India. The occasion is traditionally referred to as the first turning of the will of the Dharma, and the eight-spoke Dharma will is a common emblem of Buddhism, which is the Eightfold Path. Gotcha. Yeah, and it refers to the whole entirety of the Buddhist canon, so Buddhist Buddhist scripture that is seen as canon in the belief system. So all the books you see, things like that, if they are observed as canon, they are part of the quote-unquote Dharma. So you start to see Dharma as a noun that encompasses a lot of different things. So you have the Buddha, and you have what you learn from the Buddha. Yes, the Dharma. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what's the Sangha? The Sangha is the community. We are family. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, essentially... So really what it's saying is we need a spiritual community uh, when one or more are gathered in my name type deal, right? So this is a, a big part of Buddhism as well. The Sangha refers to the people with whom we share our spiritual lives. We need guidance of personal teachers who are further along the path than we are and the support and friendship of other practitioners. This is a very important concept because Buddhism is not an abstract philosophy. It's a way of approaching life and therefore it only has meaning when it is embodied in people. So that community is very, very important in this belief system. And it's a it's a way for people who are having trouble with their meditation and feeling like they don't have enough energy to give to come in and ask for help from others to get to where they need to be. That's really beautiful. It is. It's really it's really nice. And I will say sidebar, if anything that we have been talking about today has spoken to you as an individual, um, Look within your community for local Dharma centers. We live currently in Bozeman, Montana, which is definitely mm-hmm. um, a little bit more open-minded, but still in Montana. And we actually have a Dharma center here. Yeah. And after learning a little bit about Buddhism, I'll definitely be looking into it. And I'll, I would encourage you to do the same. Absolutely. Now, the idea of the Sangha also can lead us to the idea of the Bodhisattva, which is someone on the path to enlightenment. They are, there are different steps along the way to becoming a Buddha, which anyone can become a Buddha. We need to make that very clear. Buddha is not a god. Buddha is a a person. We all have the potential to become enlightened in this way. A bodhisattva is someone on that path. And together, the bodhisattvas and other enlightened teachers are known as the Arya Sangha, or the community of noble ones. And those are some of the major philosophies that Buddhism sort of encompasses. Now, there is one more thing that I wanted to talk about, and it's the idea of re... It's not rebirth. Reincarnation. The idea of reincarnation. Now, when you hear that, people do often associate with Buddhism, but their idea is not of reincarnation, but of rebirth. And I think that's an important distinction to make. So, in Buddhism, like we've been talking about, we're constantly suffering as we attempt to reach enlightenment. Now, this is coming from Buddha.net. Woohoo! Buddha.net. Buddha.net. Thanks a lot. You helped a ton. The Buddhist traditions have traditionally disagreed on what it is in a person that is reborn, as well as how quickly the rebirth occurs after each death. Buddhism leans heavily on the idea of non-dualism, which means there's not necessarily a spirit. So this is something I want to look more into because I could see how this could become a problem with the idea of rebirth and the idea of like what exactly is it that is becoming reborn. Reborn. Right. Yeah. Um, the majority of Buddhist traditions, in contrast, assert that the vinyaha, the, through evolving, exists as a continuum and is the mechanistic basis of what undergoes rebirth, rebecoming, and redeath. The rebirth depends on the merit or demerit gained by one's karma as well as that accrued on one's behalf by a family member. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, not great. The more (laughs) siblings you have, the Mm -hmm. less of a chance you got. I'm sorry to tell you. You (laughs) You heard it here first. Yeah. These rebirths take place within one of five realms, or six, according to some other schools. Buddha.net actually says there are ten realms. So each rebirth takes place within one of ten realms, according to Buddha.net. I've also seen uh, six. These ten realms are Bodhisattva, which we talked about, uh, Pratika Buddha, Pratyika Buddha, which means a Buddha for himself, Sravka, a direct disciple of Buddha, heavenly beings, which you could almost consider as an angel, human beings, and then you start to go lower. <laughs> you get into Asura, fighting spirits, then beasts, 
than Prita or Hungry Ghost. And the final level that you could become reborn in is would would be a depraved man, which is more of a hellish being. Or like a demon. Exactly. Ooh. And that's the lowest level that you Brutal. can become now, reborn in. Would you say this is for a more specific branch of Buddhism? Am I right? I don't. And assuming that, is this is this accepted at all levels? or? I, I think that, like I said, they've traditionally, they don't really have an agreement on this. But the majority of Buddhist traditions see these levels of rebirth. Through karma. Right. And and so when you say levels, would you say then that these are the the <laughs> intent is a funny word to use because it's like who is intending who is deciding what is happening here. But the intent of this is that you are having an opportunity to like level up in order to reach enlightenment. Yeah, exactly. So you're spending lifetimes learning how to overcome your suffering and become a Buddha yourself, which is really, I like a lot. I like the, the thought of that. I do too. Mm-hmm. Another thing, just uh, <laughs> we didn't really tell you what karma was. So karma is not necessarily the result of an action. So it's like a karma is basically like... Uh, Karma is basically deems you as a good or bad person, right? So you do something bad, you get bad karma. You do something good, you get good karma. But it's not necessarily even the action that's getting you the karma so much as it is the intent of what you were doing. You don't even have to do something to gain or lose karma. Well, I really I really like that that thought or theory. I don't know if anyone else out there has watched the show The Good Place. They had a really interesting theory on what um, brought you into the afterlife. I don't know if we should even call it a theory. It was a TV show, but I, I found it to be really interesting because it was the the better per, the the better you were as a person, the more points that you received <laughs> to get into heaven. However, as time progressed, the ability to make good choices got harder and harder because life gets really really complicated, right? So on the show, for example, you could go and buy groceries for your grandma, but if they were not all locally sourced, then you would end up losing points. <laughs> so I really, I, believe that. I mean, if you really think about it, it's like, it's very hard to do something that's 100% good. So I really like the thought of it's the intention um, behind the action. Yeah, definitely. It's the uh, thought that counts, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> definitely in this aspect. So yeah, I mean, in Buddhist tradition, life has life aspects affected by the law of karma in past and current births of a being include the form of rebirth, the realm of rebirth, your social class, your character, and your major circumstances of your lifetime. It operates like the laws of physics without external intervention on every being in all six realms of existence. Or ten realms. realms. Or ten realms of existence, including human beings and gods. And that's Buddhism. There you have it. <laughs> right? Yeah. We figured it, it out. Only. Well, that's, that's the foundation... Or, that's what we wanted to cover with you all. Uh, what yeah. we thought to be an accurate depiction of the foundations of Buddhism. Yes. And I would like to say that I we're definitely trying to have some fun with this, but we're in no way mocking Buddhism in any way. Or oh, gosh, no. Around. I hope that's not like how our this jokes, came up. Yeah, our jokes are just to lighten, lighten the podcast a little bit. I've really enjoyed learning about this, and I'm super excited to learn more about it. And I, I feel like it's something that I could definitely dive into and really find myself in. Oh, 100%. It's definitely mm-hmm. something that after looking into it a little more in depth, um, I want to continue to learn and explore Buddhism is all about. And I hope I hope that what we said today, um, what we shared with you all, was concise and clear enough that maybe you all are walking away a little a little interested as well. And if you are, um, we have some different resources that we wanted to share with you. We've been doing a little reading and we will actually be having a guest coming up to talk with us a little bit more about these readings and about their experiences with Buddhism. But yeah. if you're interested in learning more yourself, you can also start out with uh, some of the books that we've been reading, like... Be Here Now, which is the book that I started out with. It's not necessarily as much of an intellectual look into Buddhism, but more um, an individual's experience. This individual uh, goes by the name Ram Das. I'm sure you've heard of him, or if you haven't now, here you are. Ram Das, look him up. He's he's absolutely wonderful. He has a special on Netflix. Um, 
He he helped bring Buddhism to America. That's right. He did. And he has a, a book about his experience um, or his spiritual journey as a young man and his journey across India and Nepal and other places in the East. Um, it's very interesting. It has a lot of, I don't know what you even call these. <laughs> It pictures. has a, a lot of a lot of pictures and, and sketches and depictions of what he saw or encounter or encountered or what he was experiencing internally. And I would highly recommend. Chad, what did you read? So I am working on finishing up a book called You Are Here by Thik Nat Han, I believe is how you pronounce that. These names are hard, everybody. Uh <laughs> if you have a problem with it, take it up with me later. So I'm just gonna call him T and H. Because, uh, you know. You guys are close now. <laughs> TNH was a very political Buddhist, which is something that was rare at the time. He helped form a lot of anti-war communities in Vietnam during the 60s. He actually came to America, and Vietnam would not let him come back. And he lived here, it took, I think it was a, over a decade or right at a decade before he was able to come back. Um, he also... He's, he's worked with schools, helping uh, poor children, helping people who need help. He's also dedicated himself to the plight of the Vietnamese refugees, known as boat people, and he has worked with American veterans to heal the wounds of the Vietnam War. His book is more about the idea of meditation, using it to find compassion and insight in your day-to-day life via not only meditation but walking meditation and going over some of the things that we going over some of the things in more detail that we spoke about today, coming to grips with your kingdom, looking at your past and your future, and using those things to better yourself and cradling your negative emotions and helping them grow into something beautiful. It's a really good book. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's a great place to start. Uh, Also, I would like to say Ram Dass was a good friend of Timothy Leary, which was one of the pioneers of the LSD test in the 60s. That's right. They they cover that a little bit in the first part of the the book, but we'll we'll chat more about that with our guest on the next episode. I also read a book called or I'm working on reading. I should say I didn't finish the book. I'm working on it. It it has a lot of question and answers and as a hopefully former perfectionist, um I struggle with those types of workbook activities but the book that i'm currently reading is called creativity spirituality and making a buck and it's by david nickturn who also who has also helped bring buddhism culture to the west yeah, um i really like him but in this book he he kind of addresses that buddhism is hard to practice in the, the current day and age um and so he kind of talks about how to harmonize the modern human agenda and uh your spiritual journey yeah, I think you put it well. Once again, <laughs> Duncan Trussell's podcast is a big influence on us, and he, David Nickturn is his mentor, and he talks briefly about his book with him, and he mentions just how, as a spiritual person, people don't expect you to need things like money to pay bills, and you do. And it's it's a complicated world, and this book dives into how to balance those things and still feel spiritual. And fulfilled. Exactly. And a book that I have not been able to look at at all yet, but I'm super excited about, and I don't know much about it, to be totally honest, is The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. That's going to be a great read. I have no idea really what it's about. I'm looking forward to it. I think you guys should look it up. It's uh, it's basically uh, learning about the concept of dream yoga. and Dream ha- yoga. Yeah, and it have dream yoga. It includes foundational practices done during the day. In Tibetan tradition, the ability to dr- the ability to dream lucidly is not an end in itself; rather, it provides an additional context in which one can engage in advanced and effective practices to achieve liberation. Ooh. So, I'm really looking forward to this one because I used to try to lucid dream, and I only did it one time because we were smoking mugwort, and I had a terrible lucid dream where this thing ate me whole. And it's the only time I've ever done it. So, I'd like to look for some more positive experiences. And as we learn more, we'll make sure to bring it to you guys um, and, and update you on on what we've been reading. Yeah, we're hoping episodes like this will provide a foundation and we can give you additional information in the future in maybe some sort of mini-sode. Or 
just another episode that we can continue to talk about this subject because it's it's there's a lot of information there and there's a lot to go through and we want to be able to provide you with it and you can learn with us. So if you're interested in learning more, please make sure to like and subscribe us on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast. You should also go and check us out on Instagram at the underscore LR8 underscore pod where we're posting things pretty regularly yeah, we're trying <laughs> as, to. as much as we can. And we're also going to be posting pictures to coincide with what we're talking about. So as you're listening, be sure to check that out. Yeah. And I'm going to post some pictures of that weird PDF. I've already done it, but I'll post more. Uh, yeah, and be sure to follow us on Twitch where we're going to be doing those streams during the weeks that we don't have an episode airing at the LRH underscore podcast. Check us out. We want to watch weird videos with you. You want We want you to come on and talk with us and ask questions. Also, if you have stories or experiences that you want to share with us or if you have corrections for us, which we are more than willing to accept, yep. please be sure to email us at the LRH show at gmail.com. Yeah, we want all your stories, uh, be it weird, be it ideas on astral planes, opening your third eye, aliens, werewolves, anything like that. Please let us uh, hear from you. We'd love to. We want you to email us, please. Yes. <laughs> and okay. like and subscribe and follow. Yeah, that's it. So thanks for listening. We're going to have a guest on our next episode, a good friend of ours who knows a lot more about this than we do to discuss some of the books that we've been reading. So be sure to listen to, or be sure to check, be sure to look, be sure to be looking for that as well. And once again, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you'll continue listening. We love you all. And thanks for joining us on The Long Road Home. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.